Join me in Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter number 7. I want you to look there with me. And as you're turning there, I uh, recall a news report. In fact, it occupied the uh, uh, television stations, uh, the news broadcast, the broadcast stations, cable news, and some newspapers a number of years ago. This particular story did. And it's about a man that went through a good bit of effort over the decades to collect rubber bands and to turn these rubber bands into a ball. And the special feature on the news uh, demonstrated how much painstaking labor this man went to to collect all these rubber bands and to shape them into a ball. And by the time the news report happened, the ball was about this tall, as I recall. And I remember listening to the reports and reading and wondering, so what? Who cares? What good is a big rubber ball of rubber bands? And I had an illustration immediately. Preachers look for those often. The, the truth is, there are some Christians and some church members that when their life is over and their life is done, that the most exciting thing they will have ever done for God is go to a fellowship meal. Not accomplished anything else. I believe we can be different and we can do great exploits for Almighty God that we can engage in works for Almighty God that represent God, that demonstrate God, that look an awful lot like the great God that we have. And I believe that's His will for every one of us to do something great for God, not the spiritual equivalent of building a rubber band ball. Nehemiah's got some of that going on in Nehemiah chapter 7. He's already led the Jews to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, but there is one thing that is vitally important if you're going to have a wall around a city. You need some people to live in the city, and for people to live in the city, they've got to have homes. And so Nehemiah begins a second stage or second phase of this building project in Jerusalem, and he begins to rebuild the homes, lead the Jews to rebuild the homes, to order the city, to organize the city, and to get a population inside the city. Now, the way that they did that is that they checked out everyone's genealogy, and to live inside the city, you had to be established. Uh, your genealogy had to be established. You had to prove that you were Jewish in that day. That's precisely what he does in Nehemiah chapter 7. So this morning, I want to preach on the subject, Productive Tasks. Productive tasks and underscore the point that we can escape the failure of a useless life. Our lives can make a difference for Almighty God. Well, how can that be? Well, there are several things that we can do. Number one, we can accentuate the next generation. That's what you find in this text, an accent on the next generation. 87 times from verse 1, the first verse of chapter 7, down to the 73rd verse of chapter 7, you find the reference sons or descendants. Now, there were more men here than there were women. Not all the women returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, at least not initially, or really, frankly, ever. Many of the men went ahead and got the city ready so their families could come behind. So some of the families did come with the other men, but that's why they're counting the men here in the text. You get a better count of the households and the number of people that are there by counting all of the men here in Nehemiah chapter 7. But 87 times in the text, sons or descendants is used here to indicate this. 
when, unlike Americans, Jews, when they looked at a genealogy, did not back up and look at their ancestors. They instead moved forward and looked at their descendants. They were constantly concerned about producing descendants and those who would follow them because they had a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that it would be the seed or descendant of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for a new Israel filled with the promise and the power of God to advance the lordship of the Messiah. So they were not they were not oriented towards the past. They were oriented towards the future, especially when they were walking with their God. And so it comes as no surprise that this chapter and many other chapters like it in the Old Testament are filled with genealogies, sons, descendants, and in this chapter alone, 87 of them. Just a sampling in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 7. Look there. It says, The sons of Parosh, 2,100. And 72, the sons of uh, Shephatiah, 372. And you find verses like this and references like this in this chapter 87 times. It is emphatic. It is unmistakable. There is an accent here on the next generation. Now, Paul would uh, think in these terms as well in his own ministry. 1 Corinthians 4.14, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, he describes as a single man his relationship with those he had won to the Lord, those he built in the faith, as a father to a child, father to a son, father to a daughter relationship. So the churches that uh, he built and the, the, the uh, unbelievers that he won to Christ were his spiritual children. And that's how he described it. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, we find a verse there that we probably all need to memorize. He begins in verse 14 with an illustration, and in verse 15, an application that uses parent-child terminology. In verse 14, there's the illustration. He said, children do not save up or provide for parents. My children right now aren't saving a dime for me. I'm saving for them. That's the illustration. So he says then that children do not save up for parents, but parents save up for children. Parents provide for children. Parents lay aside resources for children. That's what it means to be a parent. There's mass confusion if that doesn't happen. Okay? And so that's the illustration. And Paul says, our ministry is much like that. Our churches are much like that. My ministry and my life is much like that. I'm like a parent to a child. Because here's the application in verse number 15. The application in verse number 15 is, Therefore, I will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. I'm going to take all of my resources financial resources, energy resources, my life resources, my theological resources, all the resources I have, and I am going to expend them for the sake of your soul. That's how he gives himself. Churches and individual Christians need to commit themselves to the next generation just like families commit themselves to their own children. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say thank you in all the years I've been here, and, and a few years preceding me, that uh, you've been willing to do that. You've made some changes. 
You have revised some things. You have uh, updated some things in order to reach the next generation for Christ. And we have heard testimonies of how vision like that makes a difference in the lives of others. Thank God for such churches. Accentuate the next generation. But there's a second way to accomplish productive tasks, and that is amplify evangelism. Amplify evangelism. Verse 3 in verse number 65 will underscore this. And you got to pay attention to the details of the text and understand what's going on in Jerusalem at the time. Jerusalem is a complex um, city that has rich symbolism. Jerusalem is where God would meet with His people. Jerusalem had some requirements for living within the city walls. And here's what Nehemiah says in verse number 3. Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now here's what he's saying. We have this city that is precious to God, that will be the capital city of the future kingdom when Jesus Christ returns. It was the city of David. It's where the king of Israel and eventually the whole world will sit. We've got this precious city, and as you study the rest of the New Testament, you learn it represents the saving gospel of Christ. It represents the kingdom of God. And so Jerusalem is not irrelevant to our day. It's profoundly relevant to our day. And Nehemiah is saying, guard it. Guard it. Implement these procedures and guard the city of Jerusalem. That's what we do with the gospel. We guard and exalt the gospel that it may remain pure, it may remain priority in our world and in our ministry. We do not let personal preferences take precedent over the gospel. We don't take personal whims and make them precedent over the gospel. We don't allow anyone's religious tradition to trump the gospel. We guard the priority and the content of the gospel because that is the only thing that saves and secures people's eternity in Jesus Christ in heaven. That's it. So chapter 7, verse 3, Nehemiah is doing something of an evangelism here in verse 3, but then there's verse number 65 as well. In verse 3, we have a word of protection. In verse 65, we have a word, a protocol. And this protocol is how you approach the king of all. God would dwell with his people in the temple. He did in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. He did at the altars with patriarchs like Abraham. He did in the tabernacle with Israel in the wilderness. And then when Solomon built his temple, God would dwell with them in the temple. God is always arranging something to get close to his people. But there's a protocol we observe to see the king. There's a protocol the Jews observe to get up next to God. It's found in verse number 65. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult Urim and Thummim. Now, what does that mean? Well, there were a couple of stones that God would activate on the breastplate uh, of the priest to indicate when it was appropriate to offer sacrifices, to eat sacrifices, and to interact with the holy things related to the temple. A priest had to be there, or else God would not accept the worshiper and the worshiper's approach to him. Well, God is a king, 
And God has a certain protocol that we must observe in order to approach Him. We don't come into the presence of God casually. We don't come flippantly. We do not come in a way that uh, lowers God merely to the level of a friend or a buddy. God is king of all, and there's a certain protocol we observe when we approach Him. Jesus uh, inferred this in John 14, 6. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Ephesians 2, 18. It's by the blood of Christ that we have access to God. That is the protocol for coming close to God. And so, in verse number 65, there is something of gospel declaration inferred or implied in verse number 65. And so, we end up amplifying evangelism. That's how we make a difference in others' lives. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter wrote, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, but He's patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God is doing. That's why He's waiting to send His Son to establish His kingdom, to eliminate all evil. I mean, just imagine if he came back at midnight tonight, where would most of our area be at one in the morning? You see, God wants the kind of circumstance and the kind of place where more people come to Jesus Christ. And so that's why he is waiting and delaying the full implementation of the kingdom of his son. That's why God is waiting. That's why he's patient to send Christ back. And that leads me to this statement. More people in heaven... And fewer people in hell is better than fewer people in heaven and more people in hell. It is far better. It is the heart of God. And there seem to be some in churches that quite haven't quite caught that vision. They're more wrapped up in instruments. They're more wrapped up in orders of worship. They're more wrapped up in clothing. They're more wrapped up in uh, things that, uh, frankly, are quite silly when compared to heaven and hell. Ladies and gentlemen, there are eternal issues in the balance. It's God or the devil, heaven or hell, salvation or condemnation. Therefore, we amplify evangelism and communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Accentuate the next generation. Amplify evangelism. But then there's a third thing, and that is to affirm the whole notion of sacrifice. Chapter 7, verse 2, it's total. Here you find Hanani and Hananiah, leader of the Sentinel, being made mayors of Jerusalem on behalf of Nehemiah, for he was faithful, a faithful man and feared God more than many. He was observably, externally faithful, and you could observe that. He lived a faithful life, but he wasn't merely a shell. You know, there's some people that go through the religious motions, but their heart's not in it. That's not the way it is with Hanani and Hananiah. They are externally faithful, but there's more. They fear the Lord. They're amazed by God. They're impressed with God. When His name is mentioned, it, it phases them. It, it strikes them. It moves them for His name to be mentioned. They're not casual. They're not apathetic. They're not indifferent towards the name and the work and the things of God. So internally and externally, they are committed to sacrifice. So it's total. Everything about their lives is given to Him. But that's not all. It is also God-directed. Chapter 7, verse 5, God put it in the heart of Nehemiah to engage in the burdensome task of creating a gene genealogy to determine who needed to be in the city. 
You see, Nehemiah did not wish this and think it up on his own, but he got a vision from God. God was directing him. Ladies and gentlemen, the jihadists and terrorists and suicide bombers especially, they sacrifice, but their sacrifice is not right. Not all sacrifices are correct. Not all sacrifices are are right. Now, that's an extreme example, but the kind of sacrifice we make is God-directed. We find a command in the Word, and we obey it, or the Spirit prompts our heart, and we follow that. So it's total. It's God-directed. Then chapter 7, verse 70, it's generous. Um, In verses 70 to 72, you find that the Jews collectively gave about 375 pounds in English measurements to this work. 375 pounds. Well, with gold going for more than $1,400 an ounce, in today's money, that's $8.9 million. And everyone at every socioeconomic level is given to giving to this effort. There is total sacrifice. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, those who make a difference in life get a hold of God's will in their life, and they have the attitude, whatever it takes. A future and productivity requires a whatever-it-takes attitude. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to flinch. I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to give myself fully. I've got a whatever-it-takes attitude towards the work of God because that same God has a whatever-it-takes attitude towards me as well. And I'm just simply following His example. And so, there is an affirmation of sacrifice. But then finally, there is the need to act now. On that August 29th date down at Barbarita's when Tommy and Elias were speaking with Drew, they shared the gospel with Drew and urged him to think about making a decision for Christ. And Drew responded, why can't I do that right now? So sitting around a table in a restaurant downtown, Drew called on Jesus to save him and Jesus heard him. He was willing to meet him in that place, and he is willing to meet you here now. Proverbs 27.1 says, Take no thought for tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You cannot presume upon tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this. It says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. That's something of a promise from God. It's a responsibility on you, but it's a promise of God. In other words, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means everything necessary for you to meet grace and to be saved is done by God. God has no other preparations to make at all. There's nothing lacking in God. In this very room... There is enough grace to cleanse your sin and radically change your life. If God would meet a young man at Barbaritos, He'll meet you here. Now and today, there's enough grace, there's enough mercy, there's enough love, there's enough hope, there's enough promise, and all He calls from you is to repent and place faith in Jesus. And who can't do that? That's all that takes. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Everything about God is ready. Everything about Him is worthy. He is worthy. In other words, He deserves our lives. He wants our sins. He's worthy to cast our sins and guilt upon Him and to give Him 
the prospect of our eternity and our destiny. He is worthy. And then you are savable as well. No matter what you've done, you are savable. There is nothing about you, there is nothing about you that can keep God from saving you that will hinder Him the moment you believe on Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. His love is as large as the entire world. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I'm glad he put the word whoever in there instead of my name. I would think he meant somebody else. But when he said whoever, he meant me as well. And who's not a whoever? You're a whoever. Whoever. There's nothing about God to keep you from Him. Open your heart and turn to Him this morning. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together about it. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of the gospel. And thank you that now someone can turn to you and find grace. I pray that that will help.